Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. While the new media swarm is around Trump's telephone conversation with Ukraine's president, why is it ignoring a bigger Ukraine story involving U.S. military support for neo-Nazis there? We speak to journalist Ben Norton. The CIA and military support these far-right extremist groups abroad, it often leads to blowback at home. So domestic extremists come back home and carry out domestic acts of terror. And those impacted by Trump's Muslim ban finally get their day in Congress to speak out. We would like to raise our voice to the House of Representatives, a stronghold of law and order based on the U.S. Constitution to please help us to build our lives and stop this injustice. There are one in several thousand that have been affected by the Muslim ban. Many more have a similar story, similar hardship, and similar sorrow and sadness. These stories, voices, and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, anyone who thought that John Bolton's exit as National Security Advisor would tamp down the Trump administration's extreme right rhetoric on the world stage received a rude awakening this week when 45 addressed the United Nations. And joining me to discuss Trump's week that began with that screed at the UN and is ending with a formal impeachment inquiry from Congress is On the Ground's world contributor, author and activist Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. And so, Gerald, let's start with your take on Trump's speech at the U.N. Well, let's start with this press conference after his United Nations remarks. It was even more incoherent and rambling than usual. It raises the question as to whether or not he's cracking under the weight of the contradictions in which he's ensnared. First of all, his United Nations speech, he focused on China, and his speech denounced China, which is understandable since denouncing China tends to unite the U.S. ruling elite who fear that China's in the passing lane given its strength in artificial intelligence, quantum computing, robotics, green energy. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer may be more hawkish on China than even Mr. Trump. But his key backer, Sheldon Adelson, the Las Vegas gambling tycoon, has begins invested in Macau, a special administrative region of China, just as the United States is seeking to destabilize its twin, speaking of Hong Kong, the other special administrative region. With regard to Iran, the hawks felt he was not hawkish enough on Iran, that his speech was too subdued. They're still irked that he sacked Uberhawk John Bolton, uh, the Uberhawks and the Israeli lobby and the Saudis are also upset with regard to his policy on Iran. And then there's the Ukraine crisis, which has bled into impeachment. The Hawks feel that Mr. Trump is not worth supporting in that the underlying issue is his freezing of military aid to Ukraine to confront Russia over the Crimea. The Hawks might decide that the Democrats, especially Joseph Biden, are a better bet. Uh, They remember, even if some of us don't, that in 2011, a Democratic president backed by Democrats like Hillary Clinton, Susan Rice, and Samantha Power 
delivered in terms of the crushing of Gaddafi's Libya, while the GOP holdover, Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, opposed that particular war. Besides that, the two major constituencies of the Democratic Party, uh, the black community as represented by the NAACP and the CBC, and labor as represented by the AFL-CIO, generally speaking, are largely silent or on the wrong side with regard to foreign policy, which gives the hawks more running room within the Democratic Party than they might engage and enjoy in Trump's Republican Party. Well, you know, if I could just interject, I actually couldn't believe when you said that the right wing thought that Trump was not hawkish enough on Iran. I want to play a little clip from his speech where he he talks about Iran. And I was really shocked by the language. Let me see if I can pull that up now. No responsible government should subsidize Iran's bloodlust. Iran's leaders will have turned a proud nation into just another cautionary tale of what happens when a ruling class abandons its people and embarks on a crusade for personal power and riches. So he started off talking about bloodlust, accusing them of bloodlust, and then ended up talking about, I didn't know, was he talking about the U.S. ruling elite or the Iran's ruling elite uh, on their pursuit of riches? So I was shocked at what you said, that those to his right or his right flank considers him not hawkish enough on Iran. Well, that's all talk. That's all bluster. The hawks want to see some cruise missiles in the air. The military-industrial complex also wants to see some cruise missiles in the air because those are very costly weapons. And corporations like Bechtel are looking for contracts to rebuild Iran after it's destroyed. And so as they see it, and in fact, there's a good deal of the international community sees it, uh, Mr. Trump speaks loudly but carries a small stick, as Brett Stevens in the New York Times put it. Wow. This week started with that speech, but it's ending with this formal inquiry for impeachment. So what's your take on that? Well, as I was saying, you should keep an eye on a major hawk push with regard to Mr. Biden shutting down the discourse on his corrupt, scandal-written son, Hunter Biden, and also keep a close eye on this continuing rift between Donald J. Trump and the national security establishment. The latest news, as you know, is that a CIA analyst is the one who dropped the dime on Trump with regard to his conversation with the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, which has been the predicate for this impeachment inquiry. Well, we definitely will keep watching. It's it's not really clear to me why this isn't considered almost just as partisan as the whole Russiagate fiasco. But when it comes to watching what's happening in D.C. or in Washington, it's almost like I'm watching something on Mars. I just... <laughs> so, but anyway, I will definitely keep watching. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Also in his U.N. speech, Trump continued to target Venezuela, 
even emphasizing how the U.S. recognizes a fake, unelected Venezuelan government that most of the countries in the world at the UN do not recognize. At the same time, the Venezuela Solidarity Movement remains strong in the U.S. Chantel James attended one such event in support of the Bolivarian Revolution in D.C. this week. Monday night at Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ, the Board of Social Action presented a panel discussion: Understanding Venezuela, what it means to the Black working class and liberation. Panelists Netha Freeman and Vanessa Beck are members of the Embassy Protection Collective, which occupied the Venezuela Embassy. They had the opportunity to travel to Venezuela to observe its environment and the struggles of its people firsthand. As part of a discussion with audience members, they gave their observations and placed Venezuela in the eye of U.S. imperialism. In parallel with the struggles of the Black working class in the United States, here Vanessa Beck makes those connections clear. Black African people in the United States are in the same position in relation to U.S. imperialism as the Venezuelan people are. Like Venezuelans are dealing with U.S. imperialism, while Black African people in the United States are dealing with kind of just the other side of the. Point of that, the militarism, the violence, the you know gentrification, you know like ha- being forced to leave our land, not having enough food, having lead in our water. So you know it's it's not called sanctions in the United States, but it is our experience as colonized people within the United States. To learn more about the Black Alliance for Peace, whose delegation visited Venezuela, visit blackallianceforpeace.org. From DC, this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. Well, kind of in keeping with the conversation at that program, a major environmental report released this week also highlighted the impact of racism on the quality of water received by Black and Brown communities in the U.S. According to the report titled "Watered Down Justice," released by the Natural Resources Defense Council, Coming Clean, and the Environmental Justice Health Alliance. Almost half of the U.S. population receives poor quality drinking water. It adds that race, more than economics, is a factor regarding access to safe water and enforcement of violations of water laws. According to the groups, this is the first national report to make the connections of race, socioeconomic levels, and other factors to the enforcement of the federal water law, which is the Safe Drinking Act. The report analyzed nationwide violations of federal law that occurred from 2016 to 2019. Evette Jordan, a teacher in Newark, New Jersey, which is facing a lead water crisis, told reporters Monday that the classroom has become an important site of community education about the dangers of lead in the water. I teach them that every day in my classroom about self-advocacy and about how imperative it is all of us. Need clean water. So I have a sign in my classroom, actually, and it says, "Clean water is a right." The new report recommends fixing national laws to measurably increase access to safe drinking water, preventing water contamination from discharges and spills, adopting standards to prevent dangerous chemicals from entering into drinking water in the first place, and enforcing already existing water safety laws. 
Now, when it comes to issues such as water and food safety, some on the left are concerned that the new emphasis by Democrats on impeachment will deflect attention from policies of the Trump administration that are harmful to Americans. For example, this week, the White House moved closer to adopting a rule that would end free school lunches for a half million children by making their families ineligible for food stamps. Presidential candidate Bernie Sanders called the pending change unconscionable and an example of what he called the, quote, casual cruelty, unquote, of Trump and his billionaire friends. The public comment period for Trump's changes to the SNAP program ended on Monday, September 23rd, moving the rule closer to taking effect. In D.C., housing is the issue, and the families of Brooklyn Manor in the northeast section of the district packed a courtroom Thursday morning to fight a developer's plan that residents say will destroy homes that some have lived in for decades. They are opposing plans of mid-city financial to eliminate large multi-generation apartments and raise rents to a level that residents say is unaffordable. They add that Mid-City is also trying to push out residents by using security guards to intimidate and harass residents and by not maintaining the property properly. And finally, in culture and media, Appeal Inc. is holding its 2019 Founders Day fundraiser dinner and show this Sunday, September 29th, to continue to raise money to launch a Black-owned credit union. That's Sunday, September 29th, beginning 5 p.m. at the Howard Theater in Northeast D.C. And this show, your very own On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital, is holding part two of our fifth anniversary celebration this Saturday, September 28th, 5 to 10 p.m. at 1833 M Street in Northeast D.C. That will be a party, potluck, and political discussion about media. Black progressive voices in the dying neoliberal order with Gerald Horn, Jacqueline Lukman, and Abdu Shahid of Lukman Nation. I understand that Wilma Leon will be in the house, and of course, yours truly, Esther Ivarum. More information and free tickets on Eventbrite and Facebook and our website, onthegroundshow.org. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, voices from this week's first ever congressional hearing dedicated to the Trump administration's Muslim ban. After the break, the first voice you'll hear is chair of the hearing, Representative Zoe Lofgren of California. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. of steel sir this hammer's gonna be the death of me this hammer's gonna be the death of me hammer's gonna be the death of me hammer's gonna be the death of me john henry said to his captain now a man ain't nothing but a man before i let your steel drill bring me down I will die with that hammer in my I'll die with that hammer in my hand I'll die with that hammer 
welcome everyone to this morning's hearing on oversight of the Trump administration's Muslim ban. I would like to welcome the members of the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations to this hearing. We are very happy to be working on this important issue with uh, you all today. I really do think the hearing in many ways is overdue. For two and a half years, the administration has been allowed to arbitrarily exclude from the United States individuals from predominantly Muslim countries, and there's been no uh, oversight by the Congress. Today, that oversight starts. As a candidate for president, Mr. Trump promised to ban Muslims from entering the United States, suggesting without evidence that would somehow make our country safer. Immediately upon entering office, he followed through on his promise, only to have his first executive order struck down by the courts as unlawful. It took the president 10 months, three attempts, and the inclusion of a, a waiver process that appears to be something of a sham to create a version of the ban that allowed the Supreme Court to turn a blind eye to the religious animus that inspired it. The administration claims that the ban is necessary <clears throat> to keep our country safe from terrorists, and yet a bipartisan coalition of former national security officers, officers concluded otherwise. The ban has failed to advance our national security and foreign policy interests and is, in fact, damaging those interests. Moreover, as we will discuss today, the Muslim ban keeps families apart, harms businesses, and supports the false notion that bad actors are more likely to come from certain countries. This is contrary to our American values and our immigration laws. We will hear today from some individuals who have been stuck in limbo waiting for a decision, victims of this policy who for too long have endured the pain of separation from their loved ones. Some of these individuals have missed the birth of a child, have been unable to start a family, or have had to refuse job offers here in the United States. Delays of this magnitude where major life events are missed or must be placed on hold indefinitely are unacceptable. Here we have... Dr. Abdallah Iman Dezangi is an assistant professor of computer science and director of the Master of Science in Bioinformatics program at Morgan State University. He was born in Iran and is now a legal permanent resident living in Baltimore, Maryland. Mr. Ismail Al-Ghazali is a U.S. citizen who was born in Yemen and currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. He and his family have also been impacted by the ban. To date, he remains separated from his wife, sister, five-month-old daughter, and one-and-a-half-year-old son. Farhana Kara is the co-founder, president, and executive director of Muslim Advocates, a national legal advocacy and educational organization. Previously, she served as counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee and worked under the Constitution Subcommittee Chairman Senator uh, Russell Feingold. We welcome all of our distinguished witnesses and thank them for participating in today's hearing. We are particularly honored to hear from the two witnesses personally impacted by these policies and commend them for their courage and strength in sharing their personal painful stories with us today. Uh, so... Dr. Dehangazi, you will begin. Dear respected members of the U.S. House of Representatives, thank you for your service and for giving me the opportunity to share my case and story regarding the Muslim ban and how it affects me and my wife, Dr. Ghazal Tarzadeh. 
I'm one of the thousands that have been affected by the Muslim ban and represent the most heavily impacted community, which is Iranians. One of the saddest stories of separation and heartbreak. People who came to the United States to start a new life in this wonderful country, and like many others, have strived to help make their new home a better place. Yet we have been banned for no reason other than where we were born and what religion we practice. It is our story that I would like to share with you. I'm Dr. Abdullah Zengi, assistant professor at the Department of Computer Science, Morgan State University, Baltimore, Maryland. I'm also program director of MS in Bioinformatics at this institute. I met my wife, Dr. Ghazala Tarzadeh, in Malaysia back in 2008, while we both were students at Multimedia University. After I moved to the United States, we decided to enshrine our love in marriage. We realized that after eight years, we no longer can be apart and long to spend the rest of our life together. We were happily married in September 2016, and I filled an I-130 petition for her to join me by October 2016. We knew this process was going to take up to two years, so she could join me after she completed her PhD uh, in Australia, Griffiths University. However, our dream and hopes were all shattered after the announcement of the Muslim ban and on nationals on several countries, including Iran. This cruel policy threw our lives in disarray. By April 2018, Azaleh received an offer to serve as a postdoctoral research scholar at the University of Maryland. Her aim is to conduct high-impact research in the field of bioinformatics, drug design, and drug discovery. So it would have been a wonderful opportunity for her. However, despite the efforts from the UMD, she was not able to apply for H-1B visa out of the United States because of travel ban. She finally was invited for her interview in February 2019, during which her visa application was denied. We were greatly dismayed, despite knowing this was a possibility as a result of Muslim ban. So we completed a waiver request with a supporting letter from Senator Van Hollen of Maryland. Again, with the help of Senator uh, Van Hollen, we followed up after six months in August, as had been advised but was told the process would, would take even longer than that. Unfortunately, there is no timeline. She has lost the job offer that was extended to her as there was no end in sight to this ban. Denial of her visa and entry caused us and our family undue hardship because we missed the support and companionship that we desperately seek. My wife is alone in Australia and I'm without her here. I'm separated from the person closest to me in life, and I don't know when we will get together again. Forced to go through the celebrations and hardship in our life apart. Denial of her request or further delay in this process would force me to quit my service at Morgan State University to reunite with my wife in Australia. Such an act will be a loss to my university, Baltimore City, state of the Maryland, and the United States in general. I would also have to leave behind my mom and two brothers who live in the United States. It's a very hard and heartbreaking decision to make. Our hope was to move to the United States, pursue our careers and dreams, build a family and contribute to, our, to the well-being of our society and community. I also feel uncomfortable that as a program director and supervisor, I have to leave my student behind. But there is no alternative for me. I have to be with my beloved wife, and I'm being denied my love and future because of I'm Iranian. 
as I finish this testimony, I finish to leave you with the knowledge that this unfair and xenophobic ban is destroying our life and bond. We do not know what's going to happen and how long we have to wait. For all the reasons above, we would like to raise our voice to the House of Representatives, a stronghold of law and order based on the U.S. Constitution, to please help us to build our lives and stop this injustice. There are one in several thousand that have been affected by the Muslim ban. Many more have a similar story, similar hardship, and similar sorrow and sadness. Those that hope to one day call this land of free and home of the brave their home uh, and serve this country under the same flag uh, as those can be for them. Yet they have been banned because of their nationality and religion. This is discrimination. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. We now will turn to Ismail Al-Ghazali. Thanks. Good afternoon, Congress member. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share this with you. My name is Ismail Al-Ghazali. I live in New York City, one of the greatest cities in the world. I work at a bodega, a small neighborhood market in Brooklyn. This work doesn't make me rich, but I love it because I get to meet so many people of all race and all religious. I know all my regular customers by name. When they come to my store, I want to take care of them. Today I'm here to tell you the story of my family. My wonderful wife, Hind, and our two childs, Khalid, my son, who's a year and a half old, and my newborn daughter, who's five, who's, she's, you know, five months old. In fact, I never even met my daughter yet. I never hold her in my arms. I've only seen her through photos and videos. I do not have words to describe the love that I carry in my heart for my wife and my kids. It hurts me so much that it's been now more than a year since I've seen my family. Hind, Khalid, and Rahaf and I were separated by thousands of miles because of the Muslim ban. I know I wanted to marry my wife, Hind, right away after I met her. We found a love and got married in 2013 before our family and friends. Hind has the best heart. She wanted to take care of people. In fact, her dream to become a nurse. She can't do this in Yemen, but she can pursue her dream in America. We had just been married, but I had to leave Hind behind and go back to America. I had to feed my family. My job was back in Brooklyn, I needed, and I needed to be in the United States to apply for my family to join me. In my heart, I felt that we will be together in America soon. I am a U.S. citizen, and she's my wife. We were married. What could go wrong? After the first visa interview in New York, I returned to Yemen to be with him. After two long years of waiting, the date for our immigration interview had finally arrived. My friends and co-workers loaned me the money that I needed for this trip. Together, we traveled to Djibouti for the interview. When we arrived, my wife was eight months pregnant with our son, Khaled. Her pregnancy had been difficult. Doctors had discovered she had a heart condition. We know that the Muslim ban stopped Yemenis from entering the U.S., but we also know it allows family members of U.S. citizens. Hind should have been eligible for a waiver. I'm a U.S. citizen, and she's my wife. 
and she needed medical care for a serious health condition. But the interview did not go as we expected. It didn't even last five minutes. They returned hand passport and said that her visa is being denied because of the Muslim ban. Even though Hind was my wife, we were not eligible for our waiver. We were stuck in Djibouti. I was not able to work there. The money that I borrowed was running out. I didn't was sure what to do next. Hind went into labor late one night. For most couples, this is a happy occasion. For us, it was the most scariest experience in my life. It took me 30 minutes to find a cab while my wife was in pain. Hind contractures were coming faster and faster, and we were five minutes away from the hospital, but there was no time left. My wife gave birth to our son called in the back of a cab. I will never forget this night and how hopeless I felt. I stayed as long as I could. I had 10 months to be with my family, but I had to go back to New York and provide for them. And Hind was expecting our second child. Leaving them again behind, it was more painful than you, I could imagine. And in April of this year, my wife gave birth to our daughter Rahaf in a, back in Yemen, and it broke my heart that I wasn't there for her. Now I have been asked to come back and re-interview for the waiver. I still have hope that we will be together again as a family here. Hind will become a nurse. My son and daughter will go to school and pursue their own dreams. I pray that you will find it in your heart to allow families like mine to be together. Please end this man. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Rahana Kara. We'll hear from you now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. My name is Farhana Kara. I'm the executive director of Muslim Advocates, a national civil rights organization. Since early 2017, we've been fighting the Muslim ban in the courts and working with Congress to right this wrong. Chairs Lofgren, Barra, members of the committee, thank you for holding this historic hearing the first congressional hearing on the Muslim ban. Your presence here signals your commitment to protecting civil rights for all. Ismail and Abdullah, thank you so much for your courage. You speak for thousands of Americans who are hurting today because of the ban. So how did we get here? And what can Congress do? In January 2017, just seven days after his inauguration, President Trump issued an executive order banning people from seven predominantly Muslim countries from entering the U.S. Thousands of Americans flocked to airports across the country in protest. As court after court ruled that the Muslim ban was unlawful, the president issued two revised versions of the ban versions that claim to include exceptions in a waiver process. Immediately after the third ban went into effect, thousands of blanket denials for visas were issued before individuals even had a chance to apply for a waiver or demonstrate that they were eligible for one. According to recent data from the State Department, of roughly 60,000 visa applications received during a 16-month period, 
only 5.1% of the waiver requests were granted. And to date, there is no waiver process available to the public. As we feared, the so-called waiver process has been a sham. We believe that the vast majority of the waivers sought involve Americans like Abdullah and Ismail seeking to be reunited with their family or individuals seeking urgent medical treatment. There are people like Maral Tabrizi, a green card holder, married to a U.S. citizen who recently gave birth and desperately wants her parents to visit from Iran so they can hold their grandchild. Or Afkab Hussein, a Somali refugee and green card holder who arrived in 2015 with the promise that his wife and newborn son would soon join him. Even though they were approved for resettlement nearly three years ago, they have not yet been allowed to join him here in America. Or people like Hossein Barati, desperately waiting for a visitor's visa so he can undergo specialized treatment for stage three cancer, treatment he cannot otherwise receive in Iran. The Muslim ban demonizes and dehumanizes Muslims, evoking dark chapters of our nation's history. The story of immigrant Jews, Irish, Italians, the stain of Japanese-American internment camps. Each of these groups was shunned and isolated for their otherness. But America prevailed when these groups stopped being seen as outsiders and started being seen as neighbors. And that's who American Muslims are, your neighbors. We are your dentists and patients, your teachers and students. We are baristas and barbers, politicians and even stand-up comedians. But most importantly, we are husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters. This is why the Muslim ban hurts us on a deeply, deeply personal level. Because we know it is contrary to the welcoming country we aspire to be. But here's the good news. The President and the Supreme Court do not have the final say. Congress does. Earlier this year, Congresswoman Judy Chu and Senator Chris Coons introduced the No Ban Act, a bill that would terminate the current Muslim ban and would amend the law to ensure that no president can enact a similar discriminatory ban again in the future. But most importantly, it would bring immediate relief to thousands of Americans who are separated from their loved ones today. We urge Congress to pass the No Ban Act and remove religious bigotry from our nation's immigration system for good. And in the meantime, we urge the administration to make good on its promise to issue family-based and humanitarian waivers immediately and without further delay. That was Farhana Kara, President and Executive Director of Muslim Advocates, speaking at this week's first-ever congressional hearing dedicated to the Trump administration's Muslim travel ban. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And for this month's episode of the F Word on Fascism, I'm joined by journalist Ben Norton to talk about his recent article published in The Gray Zone, Bomb-plotting extremist American soldier tried to join U.S.-backed neo-Nazi militia in Ukraine. Welcome back to On the Ground, Ben. Always glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Ben, our faithful listeners know that we've been following U.S. support for neo-Nazi groups in the Ukraine, such as the Azov Battalion. But give us the new details about this case. Absolutely. This should be a huge scandal. It should be wall-to-wall, 24-7 coverage. And the story did get a little coverage, but of course, the corporate media outlets that covered it downplayed the real controversy. So for people who don't know, you might have seen in mainstream media reports that the FBI this week arrested a U.S. Army soldier who is a far-right extremist who is plotting bomb attacks. So that is alone a very big scandal. He was going to target American media outlets, which were unnamed in the FBI complaint, but probably, you know, CNN, MSNBC, we're not quite sure, and also liberal politicians, and he specifically named Beto O'Rourke. So that is a big scandal, and that did get covered. But what didn't get covered in the media reports is that this same far-right extremist who is an active-duty soldier in the U.S. military had previously tried to join another far-right extremist neo-Nazi militia in Ukraine. And, of course, as you mentioned, this same militia has been armed for years and supported by the U.S. military. It's called the Azov Battalion. Now, if you look through basically almost all of the corporate media reports on this story, they either fail to mention this fact or they mention it in one sentence as if it's a minor detail. But this is a major detail because this is yet another example and a string of examples of what intelligence agencies refer to as blowback. That is, blowback is, you know, this innocuous term they used to refer to what they also call the disposability problem. That is when the CIA and military support these far-right extremist groups abroad, it often leads to blowback at home. So domestic extremists who are radicalized by these groups and working with these groups abroad come back home and carry out domestic acts of terror. It's the same thing we saw with the Salafi jihadist groups that the U.S. and other allies were backing in Syria and in Libya. So it's a huge problem. And in Ukraine, this is not the first example. Last November, the FBI indicted four American white supremacists who were involved with the Rise Above movement, which is a neo-Nazi group that was involved in the the fascist terror at Charlottesville, among other places. And these four white supremacists had been training with the right sector, which is another neo-Nazi group in Ukraine that is allied with the U.S. So there's a huge controversy here that is getting no attention. This is an isolated case. There's a string of patterns of these U.S.-backed groups that the U.S. likes when they're abroad. It's the enemy of the enemy, my friend. When they're fighting Russia, they're our guys. But then when they come back home and lead to horrible acts of, of violence here, of course, that's being ignored. The criminal complaint that the FBI filed was on this past Monday, September 23rd. They had arrested U.S. Army infantry soldier Jarrett William Smith for the alleged crime of distributing information relating to explosives, destructive devices, and weapons of mass destruction. But what were some of the other things that they discovered that he was planning to do or plotting to do? Well, no, so this is an even bigger part of the scandal, right? So 
the media reports did talk about his plans, but what's even more terrifying um, from, you know, a perspective of actual national security, not, not the national security that, that the CIA and military always talk about, which just means geopolitics, but from the perspective of actual security of people at home, is that this extremist who was an active duty soldier in the U.S. Army for two years was, was spreading this information. And this should be, again, absolutely terrifying to anyone here at home because what it shows is that the U.S. military allowed for two years, they, and the FBI knew that this guy was spreading information online to other extremists about how to build bombs and other you know, weapons. And he was doing this not just on you know the dark web or, or other secret networks. He was doing it on Facebook groups. The FBI criminal complaint discusses how they were monitoring his communications, and he was spreading this information with other American far-right extremists, including Craig Lang, who like him, is a, an American neo-Nazi who was fighting with neo-Nazis in Ukraine that are backed by the U.S. So this is not the first instance of this happening, but we saw that for two years, this that you mentioned Jarrett William Smith, he joined the U.S. Army in 2017. So for over two years, he was being trained by the Army in how to use bombs and other weapons and then spreading that information to other extremists online. <laughs> So that is that he compounds the controversy even further, and, and we have to ask a lot of questions. If the U.S. Army knew that this guy is a far-right extremist and neo-Nazi, then why did they allow him to be in the military? That is a huge scandal, and journalists need to investigate this further, but unfortunately a lot of journalists are not looking into this. Instead, there's a very surface-level discussion of the news story. Well, in the investigations that ProPublica did on Charlottesville, and branching out from that, they also discovered that there were several people in the U.S. military involved in that violent incident. And there were the same questions raised, like, why didn't the U.S. Army, if they knew about these people, do something about it? And there seemed to be almost like a slap on the wrist in some cases uh, about these people being in the military, but also being connected to these far right groups. So I don't think we've gotten to the bottom of it in terms of the U.S. kind of acceptance or willing to uh, have these people among their ranks. If I can jump in, what I can say is that we knew during the Bush era and, you know, the Obama administration at least did lip service and pretended to kind of shift things around in the military. But, of course, this policy continued going back to the Bush era where the government, the U.S. government was trying to encourage people to join the military so they could go fight in Iraq and Afghanistan because those were, of course, extremely unpopular criminal wars. And there weren't many people signing up. So the U.S. military eased lim limits and restrictions on joining the military, allowing neo-Nazis and other white supremacists and far-right extremists, making it much easier for them to join the military so they could go fight in Iraq. And there were controversies, you might remember, where in Iraq there were battalions using these far-right symbols, including neo-Nazi symbols. These are U.S. soldiers that are fighting in Iraq. And there was a famous incident where they were holding an SS flag well, they were stationed in Iraq. So, of course, the U.S. military wants to encourage them to go fight and, and kill people abroad, which that's what the military does. Um, and the fact that the fact the simple fact that's documented in, in the past is that the U.S. military is more than willing to turn a blind eye to their extremist beliefs as long as they're willing to fight on behalf of empire. That's what they're doing. I think people may have, you know, a memory of how the U.S. backed this really violent Maidan 
revolt, you know, to overthrow the Ukrainian government. People may remember that. But talk a little bit about because we you know sometimes you know we use these terms and we say neo-Nazi and and it almost becomes kind of void of meaning for people. So fill us in on what these groups have done in Ukraine and how that blowback is so dangerous here at home. Absolutely. So I mentioned that in 2014. There was a movement that was begun initially. It was not about freedom and democracy, like many of these movements. It was actually protests in response to the Ukrainian government rejecting a neoliberal free trade agreement with the European Union. And what's interesting is in Ukraine, it's actually not just liberal forces that support the EU, but also far right forces frequently. So there, there's actually an alliance, really an unspoken alliance between the liberal imperialists and then the far right extremists and fascists who support the European Union as a counterbalance against Russia because they see Russia as the big boogeyman. They claim that Russia wants to take over Ukraine. You know, Crimea is a very specific historical example. Crimea was part of Russia for 200 years, and then it was part of the Soviet Union. And as a kind of very minor diplomatic uh, symbolic act, uh, Khrushchev handed over the handed over Crimea to the Ukrainian SSR, which was still part of the Soviet Union, and it was a kind of diplomatic symbolic act, but it didn't really mean much. So Crimea is a very isolated example, but they use that, and they use. You know the fact that Russia now has an independent foreign policy and it's not subservient to the U.S. like it was under Yeltsin. They use these facts as supposed evidence that Russia wants to destroy and gobble up Ukraine, and it's this big malevolent empire. And of course, that feeds directly into the hands of U.S. NATO propaganda. NATO has thousands of troops in various countries on Russia's border. NATO illegally expanded east beyond Germany, even though NATO. Had lied to Russia after, right before the collapse of the Soviet Union. In meetings, the U.S. president claimed that NATO would not expand, and we now know that that's completely false. So that explains the kind of historical context going back several going back several decades. But in 2014, in response to the Ukrainian government, which leaned toward Russia, rejecting this European Union free trade deal, there were a series of protests that began, which became more and more violent, and especially there are. Reports that are, you know, pretty much incontrovertible at this point that the U.S. and other countries were sending in weapons and encouraging acts of violence to overthrow the elected Ukrainian government, and they they succeeded after several months of violence, similar to what's going on in Hong Kong. You know, it was portrayed as a protest movement that actually was just a coup attempt, and it was successful in Ukraine. And then they installed a very right-wing pro-European Union government that tried to join NATO and and did not manage to do so, but tried to move toward the process of joining NATO. And it's important to understand that in this coup attempt, or this actual coup, rather, in this 2014 coup, it wasn't just. You know, it, it wasn't all liberal protesters as portrayed in Western corporate media. These far-right neo-Nazi groups played a significant role as the kind of the muscle behind the coup. And there were many massacres, including there were snipers that killed protesters. And of course, in Ukraine, the media blamed these snipers, claiming that they were Russian. But we actually now know that these snipers were Ukrainian, and it was it, they were encouraging violence because they wanted the government of Yanukovych to crack down so they could say, "Oh, this is a, a violent dictatorship." And then, in the international community, try to delegitimize the government to justify overthrowing it. That all worked. 
It's very similar to the tactics used in 2002 against the elected government of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, where there were also snipers who were shooting protesters and then blaming it on the government. So th th these tactics go back many decades. They're CIA-style tactics of regime change and coup-mongering. Coup and what it did is it led to a kind of color revolution like we saw in other countries in Eastern Europe that overthrew a Russia-leaning government and installed a pro-NATO government. And that leads us up to today, where since then, in the past five years, there's been a brutal conflict in the east of Ukraine that not only has killed thousands of people, but actually has led to a mass exodus of refugees that, that barely gets discussed. People talk about Syrian refugees, Afghan, Iraqi refugees, but there have been a lot of people displaced in Ukraine. And of course, Western governments like to blame this all on Russia as if everything is Putin's fault. But actually, of course, the answer, like I said, is much more complex. And this history is very complex. And the U.S. has had its hand involved in this in, for many years and, and, and U.S. allies, too. So as you were discussing that, you know, it occurred to me how these neo-Nazis, neo-fascist outfits like we even have here in the U.S. are often used as kind of these shock troops for a certain message getting out into society. Even here in the United States, when we talk about Antifa uh, being out on the streets opposing these fascist groups, very often the police, I'm thinking of places like Seattle, we even had incidents here in Washington, D.C., have not cracked down on these neo-fascists, fascist protesters, or, or even in Charlottesville. They stood by as these neo-fascists were beating up a school teacher there. That the police often aren't cracking down on neo-fascists, or in the case of Ukraine, for actual regime change and a coup. That is something that we can see happening on both sides of the ocean. No, absolutely. And what we see, once again, especially in the U.S., but in other countries, is infiltration of police forces by these far-right extremists. You know, the thing about the far-right is that the far-right doesn't see state power under capitalism as its enemy. It actually wants to wield cap the capitalist state for its own hyper-authoritarian, racist purposes. So what we see in Ukraine is something that uh, a long, years-long process that we see in the U.S. and other countries where these extremist groups will gradually infiltrate and co-opt you know, police forces, military forces. We just saw in New Jersey, just a few days ago, there was a story of a police chief in New Jersey who's a white supremacist and said Donald Trump is the savior of the white race. I mean, these are just explicit white supremacists and fascists. And Ukraine is a good example of this, where there were large elements of the state that were very sympathetic. And, and actually now, it's not just the military forces, it's not just the police, it's even the parliament. We have seen, for instance, the Rada, which is the Ukrainian parliament. The chair of the Rada is a, is a basically, a, he's still a neo-Nazi, but he's kind of put on a suit and he's kind of rebranded a bit. His name's Andrei Parabi. He founded two explicit fascist organizations, including the Social National Party of Ukraine. And this guy has been welcomed in to the U.S. Congress and also to the British Parliament. And fortunately in Britain, there have been protests against this from inside Parliament, people saying, why are you welcoming in this far-right extremist, this fascist, this white supremacist? But in the U.S., for instance, John McCain and Paul Ryan both met with Andrei Parabi, this Ukrainian neo-Nazi leader, in their offices and, and posted tweets about how great it was that they're working with Ukraine and, and building this coalition against the evil Russian boogeyman.
Now, I know we're running out of time, but of course, the big Ukraine story this week is not this, but this pending impeachment or threatened impeachment of Donald Trump because of his conversation with the current Ukrainian president about, you know, looking into Joe Biden and Joe Biden's son, you know, activities in Ukraine. And a lot of people probably didn't even know that was happening. So I, I know it's a lot, but can you sh- share any parallels or connect those two for us in terms of, you know, why are the Bidens in Ukraine? And is this just part of this neoliberal project that's expanded globally? Well, it's absolutely what it is. After the 2014 coup and you had the rise of a pro-NATO government that was, you know, trying to join NATO and was supporting the European Union, you had opportunities for business contracts, very lucrative contracts. And Hunter Biden uh, you know, the Biden family really cashed in on this. And, you know, the thing is, elements of the Democratic Party are saying that this, this is a, this is not a real scandal and that Trump is trying to politicize. You know, I despise Donald Trump and everything he represents. It is also true that at the same time, this is an actual scandal. And it's a sign of very real corruption that both of these parties are complicit in. And now Nancy Pelosi and others are trying to use this particular instance as, as an opportunity to impeach Trump. I think we should really consider the possibility of this backfiring because, you know, like I said, this is an actual real form of corruption that the Bidens have been complicit in. And it's, it's very likely that Trump at the same time was using it illegally as a form to pressure Ukraine into investigating his, his opponent, which that is definitely a big scandal. But the problem is, Considering all of Trump's crimes, his genocidal war in Yemen, his continued use of drones and expansion of the drone program, his support for white supremacists and far-right extremists, his, you know, you go down the list, his tax breaks for the rich. He has so many crimes, so many misdeeds, but instead they're focusing on this one particular phone call with the Ukrainian president, which might not actually work when it comes to impeachment. It could backfire and could also raise more and more awareness of the fact that the Democratic Party is equally corrupt. But of course, you know, when you have a party that's funded by Wall Street that that pretends to be progressive, but actually just acts in many of the ways that Trump acts and supports many of his policies, that that shouldn't be too surprising. So I think for many of us who are critical of of the neoliberal democratic establishment, this, this is going to be something that is reminiscent of what we were warning about before Russiagate, where we said, you know, we're wasting a lot of time here, and this is going to come back to bite. And unfortunately, we saw what happened there. It really came back to bite hard and actually played into Trump's hand. And it's very—it's a very real possibility that this a failed impeachment attempt could also help Trump get reelected in 2020. All right. Well, I know we'll have to end it there. I've been speaking with journalist Ben Norton about his latest article in The Gray Zone. Thank you for joining me today, Ben. Absolutely. Always glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Special thanks to Michelle Roberts, Chantel James, and Gerald Horn, who will be joining us Saturday, September 28th, for part two of our show's fifth anniversary celebration. That will be a party, potluck, and political discussion about media, specifically black progressive voices in the dying neoliberal order. As we go to broadcast, that celebration is tomorrow, Saturday, September 28th, 5 to 10 p.m. at 1833 M Street in Northeast, Get info and free tickets at Eventbrite under On the Ground 5th Anniversary Part 2 or get tickets on the Facebook event 
I'm also looking forward to Appeals Founders Day celebration on Sunday evening, raising funds to get a black credit union off the ground. Go to appealinc.org for more info. The music we played this hour included Cecile McLaurin-Salvant, John Henry, All Right by Kendrick Lamar, remixed by Floyd DJ Waheed Aaron. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, like us on Facebook, Twitter, under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And thanks to our Patreon community at patreon.com for your support and encouragement. I'm Esther Ivarum. Looking forward again to those who can make it to our fifth anniversary celebration part two on September 28th. Check onthegroundshow.org for more information or also our page on Facebook or Eventbrite. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.